0: Well, good morning. morning. Have you ever been surprised by something that was better than you expected? Like you had maybe low expectations or maybe cynical expectations, and then it just far exceeded your expectations. I want you to think about, and kids, I want to include you in this, uh, the last trip that you took, the last time you went on vacation and you left Prescott, maybe you left Arizona, you went on a long trip, and maybe you were really excited, you weren't Maybe that excited. You didn't really know how it was going to go. Uh, my wife and I took a trip about 11 years ago. It was the longest, one of the longest trips we ever taken. We flew from Phoenix, Arizona, to Ndola, Zambia, 35 hours. A lot of time in planes, a lot of time in airports. We were really exhausted when we get there, and we were working with a, a university in Zambia. We were doing some teaching and equipping. People there, but while we were there, they said, "Hey, we know you're here to do work, but we want we want you to enjoy the beauty of Zambia. We want you to enjoy how amazing our country is." And they said, "Hey, you have to go see Victoria Falls. It's amazing waterfall." Now, now I wasn't really ever wowed by waterfalls. I'd been to Niagara Falls, and it's okay. Um, I'd been to other waterfalls, and I just it wasn't really overwhelming for me. And so when we got there to Victoria Falls, we were blown away. Because this waterfall is the largest waterfall in the world. It's over a mile wide, and it's over 300 feet tall. That's more than double the height of Niagara Falls, and it's more than double the width of Niagara Falls. You've been to Niagara Falls. It's just massive. It just goes and goes and goes and goes. And you have to be up really early in the morning before the sun rises to even be able to see the waterfall because the mist is so strong. And so we got up early one morning before the sun had even rose. We got out there. We were completely soaked from head to toe. And we stood in front of this waterfall. And I brought uh, the sound of this waterfall with me. So I just want everybody in the room, just for a second, close your eyes. Imagine you're standing in front of a waterfall that's a mile wide, over 300 feet tall. And this is what it feels like. lot, right? It was overwhelming. It far exceeded our expectations, and just that moment, that day alone at the waterfall was, was worth the trip. Now, what I learned that day is expectations can set us up. Expectations can set us up for a great experience. Sometimes they set us up when there's disappointment for a terrible experience, but our expectations are really important And today, as we consider our series called A Living Hope in a Hostile World, we're going to talk about expectations, because expectations are incredibly important. We've been walking through 1 Peter this fall. We'll be in it for a few more weeks. And here's the big idea, if you're taking notes, that we're going to spend time coming back to all morning long. Suffering either drives a wedge between us and God, or suffering draws us closer to God Suffering has the ability and the tendency to push us in either of those directions. Now, some of you know that you kind of vacillate back and forth, like you're, it's driving a wedge and then it's driving you closer, and sometimes that happens between lunch and dinner on the same day. you know, but but that is what suffering does, and we're going to see that and about the importance of our expectations when it comes to that today in First Peter chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open today to First Peter 4. If you get to the book of Revelation, you've gone too far, but it's near the back of your Bible, and we're going to tackle this second half of First Peter 4 today. We're going to walk through it piece by piece. So just keep your Bible open, and we're just going to kind of make our way through it. Um, and kids, there's going to be some moments along the way for you too. As we go through First Peter 4 today, we're going to see two ways that we can draw closer to God in suffering, because none of us want suffering to drive us away from God. We don't want suffering to drive a wedge between us and God. We want us to draw us closer to God. So how does that happen? There's two things we can do. The first thing we can do is we can reset our expectations as a follower of Jesus. We can reset our expectations as a follower of jesus so that as we follow jesus we know what we're getting ourselves into and this is where peter starts this section in first peter four twelve. peter says dear friends don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you so he says hey don't be surprised the idea of being surprised is that you were expecting something different. If you've ever had a surprise party thrown for you or, or you went somewhere and they gave you a $10,000 check and they didn't tell you before you came that day that you were getting a big check, that's a surprise because it's not what you were expecting because our expectations shape our perception. When we walk into an experience with an expectation, and all of you had an expectation today when you came here. You had a sense of what you thought was going to happen, and that shapes how you perceive what actually happens. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to suffering, some of us are surprised when suffering comes our way. Others of us expect it, and those different kind of walking in expectations change everything. You see, when when you're surprised by suffering, it, it throws you off when hard things happen. I had to practice what I preach this week. It's always so frustrating when I'm writing a sermon and God makes me practice what I preach. Last Sunday, I was standing right here at 1030 in the middle of our service when I had a first. A part of my tooth fell out in the middle of my preaching. Temporary crown right back here. Just fell out. And apparently I covered it well because a bunch of people I told this week, like, I know that was happening. Yep, it happened. It was awesome. Then Then I took a selfie of it backstage, sent it to my dentist after the service. I said, hey, do I need to come see you? He's like, no, most of it's still there. You're good. So so then Wednesday, I've been preaching for 16 years. I've never had this happen before. I deleted my entire sermon. It was finished. It was awesome. I was feeling good. And I've been fighting a sinus infection all week. My brain was cloudy. I closed the wrong window. I deleted it. I phoned a friend and said, hey, can I recover the file? No, it's gone forever. Then Thursday, I was sitting there having lunch with a friend. Something fell off in my mouth. And I said, I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick. I looked at my tooth and I went straight from the restaurant to my dentist and my crown came off in multiple pieces in his hand. And I was so mad. I was so frustrated. I was like, God, what are you doing? And he's like, Why are you surprised by suffering? (laughs) Now, I'll be honest. It wasn't the crown that was suffering. The root canal that led to the crown, that was suffering. But I realized that I didn't expect this in my week. Therefore, I was frustrated. But if I had been, you know, expecting that to happen, I would not have had such a conniption fit all week long. See, when you're surprised by suffering, you say, God, what are you doing? And you know what? there's only one difference between God, what are you doing, and God, what are you doing, and it's this exclamation point. See, when you are surprised by suffering, you say, God, what are you doing? You get angry at God, and ultimately what happens is you end up in resentment. But when you expect suffering and you anticipate hardship, what happens is you don't say, God, what are you doing? You say, God, what are you doing? same words, entirely different meaning. And you say them not from a position of resentment, but a position of curiosity. And what I've discovered is realistic expectations, they help us to keep an open heart. So that when we're going through adversity, and when we're going through suffering, we keep our hearts open and curious to what God is doing, as opposed to closing our hearts Hardening our hearts and beginning to resent God. And here's the thing I will tell you as a follower of Jesus, kind of translating First Peter four twelve into our modern day. If you're going to follow Jesus, you are not going to have an easy path. You're going to suffer. There are going to be adversities, hardships, and difficulties. At times, you may feel like Jesus made your life worse, not better. So don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal happens to you as if something unusual is happening. It's not unusual for a follower of Jesus to suffer. So reset your expectations. Now I can tell from the quietness in the room everyone's excited that I'm sharing this this morning. But let me give you a little bit of a visual. Kids, I, I brought an ironing board so so in my family, my, my dad was always the one who ironed. And so every Saturday night we had to lay out our clothes for my dad to iron because he was like the best ironer. And I learned a little bit from him. But as you can tell from what I'm wearing, I don't enjoy ironing because this doesn't require ironing. But I, I have this white dress shirt that I'll typically wear when I wear a suit. And so what happens when you iron is, is you lay something out that's super wrinkled. You stretch it out. And then with a lot of heat, you begin to press those wrinkles out. And kids and adults, for this analogy, you and I are the shirt. And suffering is the iron. How much fun is it to be stretched and pressed and brought with that heat? Not very fun. But when you recognize that God is the one who's allowing the the suffering to come, and God promises us in Scripture that he doesn't waste anything, including suffering, what can happen is that suffering doesn't have to drive a wedge between you and God. Suffering can actually draw you closer to God. Because for all of the OGs in the room when it comes to following Jesus, for those of you who've been following Jesus longer than I've been alive, you know that some of the deepest times of intimacy with you have been the seasons when you've been pressed and stretched. And suffering has the power to draw us closer to God. And the first thing we have to do, if that's the case, is we've got to reset our expectations. The second thing we've got to do is we have to align our actions to match our expectations. So once we have these new expectations, we now have to begin to act in light of them and align them. And here's the first way we do that. According to Peter, we rejoice now so we can also rejoice later. Rejoice is the blank for both if you're taking notes. Beginning in verse 13, Peter says, Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ... So you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Now, most of us don't attach the word rejoicing to the word suffering. We don't think about suffering and think joy. This is where I want to remind you, joy is not the same thing as happiness. If you are happy while you are suffering, I have a good counselor I can recommend you to. But what Peter is saying is rejoice, choose to rejoice as you're going through that suffering. And the reason why you're rejoicing is that suffering as Jesus did can help us become closer to Jesus. Most people who are here on a Sunday morning in church, one of your desires is to feel closer to God, to feel closer to Jesus. And one of the ways that happens is when you go through suffering as he did because you're experiencing what he experienced. That doesn't mean when you make a bad decision, stick the foot in the mouth, forget something that you're suffering as Jesus did. No, that's just you sticking your foot in your mouth. That's just you making a bad decision. But when you suffer for doing good and you suffer as Jesus did, it actually can bring you closer to him and you can experience what he did. In Hebrews 12, the writer says, for the joy that lay before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was not having a big smile on his face when he was being crucified. But he saw the joy on the other side of the cross that you and me and everyone else who would come after him could experience forgiveness, transformation, love, acceptance because of what he was doing on the cross. So he didn't have joy in the moment, but he saw the joy that was ahead. And so he rejoiced then in the moment because he knew he would rejoice in the future and we can do the same. When we're in suffering, we can rejoice because we know what God is bringing through it. Okay, kids, I'm going to ask you to lead out in this, and I'm going to ask everybody to go along with me. I need everybody in the room to give me a good right arm flex right now. Everybody. Everybody, okay? This is your bicep right here, okay? Some of you are embarrassing us, so please put your big biceps down. For those of you who use emojis, this is the flex emoji, okay? Okay? And this is your bicep, this is your tricep. But what some of us don't know is we actually have a muscle in our body that grows as we rejoice. Let me share with you the words of a Harvard researcher. They said, the more you practice giving your brain at feeling and expressing gratitude, the more your brain adapts to this mindset. You could even think of your brain as having a sort of gratitude muscle. So in here, there's a muscle that actually grows as you rejoice and give thanks. They continued, that muscle can be exercised and strengthened where the more you give it an effort at feeling gratitude, one day, the more the feeling will come to you simultaneously in the future. So today, as you rejoice, today, as you are practicing giving thanks in suffering, What happens in your brain is that muscle gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So kids, right now you got a little handout from Miss Jen and some of our volunteers. On your handout, I want you to think about what is one thing that you're thankful for. And for all the rest of you grown-ups, Tuesday starts the month of November. And I have a pattern of inviting us as a church to practice gratitude in November. If in November you took those 30 days and you wrote down three things you're thankful for every day in November, two things would be true at the end of November. You'd have a list of 90 things that you're grateful for. The other thing that would be true is that your gratitude muscle would look really good by the end of November. Because every day you had practiced it, And over time, what took a lot of effort would begin to become more natural. So the first way we align our actions with our expectations is we begin to rejoice now so we can rejoice later. The second thing we do is we make God easier to see. We make God easier to see. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4.14. He says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Like I was talking about earlier. This isn't the kind of suffering for Jesus or like Jesus. This is suffering because of your own sin. He says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name Christian. Now, a little bit of trivia for you that word Christian only appears three times in the entire Bible. Did you know that? Only three times is the word Christian used in the Bible. It's everywhere in our world, but it's actually very rare to see the word in Scripture. It's in Acts 11, Acts 26, and then right here in 1 Peter 4. And every single time that the word Christian is used in Scripture, the context is that someone would be using it as an insult, like, ew, Christian. In the day of Jesus and his first followers in the first century, the people who were using the term Christian were trying to ridicule and mock people who were followers of Jesus. So from the beginning, as long as that term has been around, it's been used as a term of derision and mocking. And Jesus warned his followers of this, that this was coming in Matthew 5. He said, you are blessed when, not if. He was anticipating that it was going to be a reality. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and say falsely every kind of evil against you because of me. He says, be glad and rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. So again, we're aligning our expectations with our actions, and we're allowing suffering to drive us closer to God. And we do that by anticipating that we're going to be mocked, ridiculed, made fun of. And when that happens, God says that we're blessed, and Peter says we have an opportunity to glorify God. Now, I know in church sometimes we use words, that we all think everybody knows what they mean, but if you ask them to define them, they have no idea what they mean? Glorify is a word like that. Here's what the word glorify means. It says, to bring Jesus' glory or radiance to light, to manifest or reflect it, to raise it up or magnify it that others might see it. So when we're glorifying God, We're giving him the respect, the honor, the radiance, the glory that he deserves. And we're seeking to reflect it by raising it up. Now, kids, if you have ever seen the movie Lion King, there's a scene that illustrates this. And it's this scene right here. Rafiki, I almost asked for somebody's baby for this scene right now, but I decided to pass. (laughs) Rafiki raises up Simba, and they all sing the circle of life. And he raises up Simba, and what he's doing is he's glorifying Simba. So when we glorify God, we are raising him up. We're magnifying or lifting him up so that others can see him more clearly. And what we all know is that Christians are really good at making Jesus hard to see. We do that by being jerks. By being judgmental, by being better than others. But when we're in suffering and people are watching us go through it, we have an opportunity to make Him easier to see. Because people are watching us to say, What do you actually believe? And what difference does it really make? The third way that we can align our actions and our expectations is we can be humble in the midst of judgment. We can be humble in the midst of judgment here's what peter says in first peter four seventeen. he says for the time has come for judgment to begin with god's household and if it begins with us what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of god he says and if a righteous person is saved with difficulty what will become of the ungodly and the sinner The image that the Bible has of judgment is the image of a fire, a refining fire. And Peter said that's going to begin with the household of God. So before God judges the world, he's going to allow judgment to come on his household, us. So be prepared for that. And allow that to, to humble you. Because what judgment does is it refines what is there for the believer. And the the imagery or the language of this is the idea of refining metal. Kids, if you look at your parents right now, they maybe have like a ring on or a watch that's made out of like gold or silver or platinum. When that metal came out of the earth, it looked like this. This is gold ore. This is how it comes out of the earth. And over the process of refining it becomes like this or the jewelry we wear. Now, what's fascinating is the difference in size. On average, it takes three tons, 6,000 pounds of gold ore to give you pure gold, 15 one-hundredths of an ounce. That's how much impurity has to be judged and refined away to get that, let me illustrate that for you. Did anybody here drive today and make their way here in a minivan? Anybody raise their hand? Anybody come in a minivan? Minivan people, cool, okay? The average American minivan weighs three tons, 6,000 pounds, like a giant piece of gold ore. Don't you wish your minivan weighed, you know, as, although they're, with used car sales, maybe it is worth as much as gold ore now. But what's interesting is if you do the math, what weighs 15 one-hundredths of an ounce? One sheet of paper. If you have a handout today, that's 15 one-hundredths of an ounce. That's the refined product of something that weighs this much. And that's why when God brings judgment in our lives, that fire, it purifies us. It removes all sin. It removes anything that is not of God. And what we discover is there is so much in our life that doesn't align with God and doesn't reflect Him. And so when judgment begins with God's household, it purifies us. And so we get humbled in the process. And so if you're going through judgment, don't stay arrogant. Choose humility and allow God to remove all those things from your life. But what Peter says is he says, if a believer is saved through difficulty, what about a non-believer? And that's what we see in Scripture is for non-believers, judgment does far worse. And that's why I would not wish the judgment of God on any person. Especially those who've said, I don't want anything to do with God. The final thing Peter says in this passage is he tells us to focus on our responsibility focus on our responsibility. Not other people's responsibility, but our responsibility. First Peter 4.19 says this, so then let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. So how do we respond to suffering that God allows in our life? Because nothing comes into our life that God hasn't chosen to allow. Nothing's in your life that hasn't passed through God first. How do we respond to suffering? We do two things. According to this verse, we trust God, our faithful creator, and we do good. We're not in charge of the suffering ending. We're not in charge of, of this extent of the suffering, but we can trust God while we're going through it, and we can do good while we're in it. Now, here's the problem. A lot of us, we want God's job in suffering. We want to be the person who decides when the suffering is going to end. We want to be the person who decides how extensive the suffering is. And so we struggle to trust God and we try to be God and take back control. Well, what happens while we're caught up in that? We're not doing good. While we try to do God's job, we can't do our job. And this is why I love what Craig Groeschel says about this. He says, the outcome is God's responsibility. Obedience is our responsibility. You're not in charge of the outcome of what you're going through or when that will happen. What you are in charge of is obeying and following and trusting in and doing good while you go through suffering. I've shared with you guys over the years that I have battled anxiety. For the past six years i've battled anxiety i've had panic attacks ended up in the hospital i thought it was my heart no it was my anxiety and i will tell you that my anxiety is often the product of trying to carry what is actually god's responsibility As I was thinking about about this verse and this difference between what's my responsibility and what's God's responsibility is on so many occasions, I feel burdened, weighed down, anxious to the point of panic because I'm trying to do a job I am not suited for. I had you guys flex earlier. I don't know how strong you are. For those of you who feel really strong, let me tell you what you cannot carry on your shoulders, the weight of the world. You cannot carry What is God's to carry? And so Peter is saying, when you go through suffering, focus on your responsibility. Trust the creator and do good. And let God's shoulders carry the weight that you can't. Now let me tell you, not every anxiety is a result of this. Sometimes anxiety is something outside of our control that you need professional help with or maybe you need medication for. But sometimes our anxiety is the product of trying to carry what's God's responsibility, of trying to control what God is actually asking us to trust. And let me tell you, the one thing I've discovered with with anxiety, the one path that I know is a dead end, like in a corn maze, is control. If you want out of anxiety, the one thing you can't do is reach for control. That will not take you. My prayer for you this week is that as you go through suffering, that suffering would not drive a wedge between you and God, but the suffering he's allowing in your life would actually draw you closer to him. Let's talk about some next steps today before we close. First, I encourage you this week to spend some time establishing or reestablishing your expectations as a follower of Jesus. Like for those of you who got into this Jesus thing and it's not been what you expected, maybe it's time to go back and make a fresh start and say, hey, I need to set some new expectations. From now on, I will tell you, if you go to Zambia, don't miss Victoria Falls. It's better than you expect. It's better than you just experienced. I can tell you that because I've experienced it. And if some of us have had some experience following Jesus, we need to go back and establish some new expectations. Not based upon what we thought it was going to be, but based upon what it actually is. Then two, determine your next step in aligning your actions with your new expectations. Maybe some of your frustration is there's a gap between what you expect and what you do. I've given you four ideas. Rejoicing, making God easier to see, being humble in the midst of judgment. Focusing on your responsibility, but maybe there's some other steps you might take. But determine your next steps. And then finally, third, I want to encourage you, and kids, pay attention for this one. I want you to encourage your friends and family, especially when they're in times of adversity or suffering. Sometimes our problem when we're going through suffering is we try to carry it all on our own, and sometimes our problem is we try to go through suffering by ourselves. This letter is not written to individuals it's written to a community. Because in my experience, the best way to go through something hard is not go through it by yourself. So if you know somebody who's in suffering today, maybe you could write them a note and go old school and put a stamp on it and put it in the mail. That way we don't just get, you know, political ads times 70 for the next two weeks. I got a bill last week and I was so excited because it wasn't a political ad. How how twisted is our world? Maybe it's, it's putting an arm around a friend and saying, hey, I know you're going through this hard thing, but I'll go through it with you. And maybe it's not sending somebody a text. It's picking up the phone and calling them and saying, hey, how are you doing? No, no, no. How are you really doing? If you're not in a season of suffering today, bless you. Save this for another day. But maybe your next step is to reach out to somebody else who is. And if you're going through suffering, friend, let me just tell you, you can't do it on your own. God didn't design you to do it on your own. He wants you to do it with him, and he wants to allow allow you to allow yourself to allow the people to come along and help you. It doesn't mean you're inadequate. It doesn't mean you're weak. It means you're human. And I hope that you will find hope today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you tell us the truth about what we're facing and what we're going to face. And that truth sometimes is sobering, but Jesus, it is still also filled with hope. We know that you are at work in the midst of our suffering doing something that we can't yet see. We know that if we look back to the cross that you bring beauty out of ashes, you make beautiful things out of painful, difficult moments. And so we pray that our hope would not be set on having an easy life, a pain-free, suffering-free life. We pray that our hope would be set on you. And we pray that through whatever we're going through, we pray that you might do good through it and we pray you might change us in it. Jesus, you are are our living hope, not a dead hope, a living one. We cling to you, we trust in you, and we cast all of our worries and our cares and our anxieties on you. You can carry it in a way we can't. So today we...